You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, in the wake of last week's terrorist attacks in Christchurch, is a moment of reckoning for social media platforms at hand. My guests, Victor Bulmer Thomas and Brian Klass, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a meeting of the Donald Trump Jair Bolsonaro Mutual Admiration Society, a possible resolution of the Guatemala Belize territorial dispute everyone's talking about, and an urban planning squabble causing residents of one California town to say whatever is the opposite of That will start to make sense about 24 minutes from now. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Brian Class, an assistant professor in global politics at University College London and a columnist for the Washington Post, and Victor Bulmer-Thomas, associate fellow in the Americas program at Chatham House. Welcome both. And we will start in New Zealand, still coming to grips with last Friday's murder of 50 people at two mosques in Christchurch by a far-right terrorist. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, as well as seeking to tighten New Zealand's gun laws, has said that it is time that a long, hard look was taken at the role of social media in terrorism. And on this occasion, social media seems not merely to have been an enabler of radicalisation, but was used to broadcast the crime as it took place. Arden said that social media platforms are the publisher, not the postman, and that it cannot be any longer a case of all profit, no responsibility. Uh, Brian, first of all, is she right? Yeah, I think she is. I think it's time to to be more strict about regulating social media. And I think in particular, I think we, we have to get beyond sort of the, the slogans that you tend to hear from politicians after these, which inevitably lead to Mark Zuckerberg saying we need to do better and then not actually doing anything. And those policy changes, I think there's, there's two main ones that I would look at. One is uh, reformulating the algorithm so they stop boosting extremist content. I mean, if, you'd, if you've gone down a YouTube rabbit hole ever, especially around something like September 11th, I mean, immediately the ones on the sidebar are lunatic conspiracy theory videos that need to be taken down. And, and, that, and that is clearly possible because yes. there is no, it is impossible to upload pornography onto Facebook or YouTube. They can clearly create algorithms that will block things. Exactly. And the only reason they're not is because they get a lot of money from the things that are most extremist and generate a lot of clicks. And the second thing that I think is worth debating at least is to have some sort of method of reducing or eliminating anonymous accounts. Um, We have a series of things that we do online, Airbnb, Uber, etc. They're all tied to a person. But when somebody spreads terrorist content online, they can just make 100 new accounts tomorrow the second that they are banned from the platform. And I think that one way to possibly do that would be to have an opt-in verification system where you could still be on the on the platform anonymously, but everybody who had been verified would have some sort of check mark next to their name. And then it would eliminate this whole, you know, sort of ecosystem where people are actually held accountable for spreading this content. Um, Victor, the social media platforms have by and large, although increasingly tenuously, I think, tried to cling to this idea that they are morally neutral, neutral rather, conduits of communication, that they are no more responsible for this than than you would blame the telephone company uh, if they were used to plan a bank robbery. Uh, that doesn't really hold up anymore, does it? 
I mean, they've admitted that themselves by acknowledging that they can interdict and remove obnoxious content. They are acknowledging that they do have a responsibility, aren't they? Yes, they are. But I would say two things. One is that there's too much temptation, I think, on the part of uh, politicians to say, uh, you've got to clean up your act. And then, as Brian says, they said, yes, we've got to do better. And so the ball is in their court and the politicians are left uh, wondering whether they're going to do it or whether it's enough and all the rest of it. So I think clearly the guidelines provided by governments has to be much stronger and much stricter. The second thing is, though, we mustn't um, be sidetracked into thinking that it's just getting a few million followers on social media that motivates uh, acts of uh, terrorism by individuals. I mean, clearly, that boosts a sense of importance, etc., etc. But ultimately, what they're trying to do is to provoke a reaction from those that they're attacking, and indeed from the state itself. And so those things also have to be in the mix when we're talking about responses to acts of terrorism. I mean, Brian, it strikes me that there's two possible comparisons of varying utility here. One is to just suggest or just to enforce, as Jacinda Ardern seems to be suggesting, that these people are publishers and they should be held as responsible for what appears beneath their masthead as any newspaper or magazine uh, is. Or there's the argument, which I also do see, that we should encourage Facebook and Twitter and others to think of themselves as private spaces, which they are, uh, and to therefore impose standards of behaviour accordingly, in the same way that if you were running a pub or cafe or other semi-private, semi-public space and somebody charged in and started making a nuisance of themselves talking about how the Illuminati carried out September 11th, you would, you would have them slung onto the footpath. Yeah, I mean, so I think for the first one, if we treated Facebook or Twitter or any of these platforms as a publisher, the platform would die. Because it would basically be impossible, given the scale of the content. I mean, 2 billion people on Facebook alone. Being able to police that every word is probably impossible. Well, thanks to Facebook, there's a lot of out-of-work sub-editors. <laughs> this, this is true. And so, so I, you know, I'm not saying that that's not the right approach. I'm just saying that we have to have a debate in society about whether social media is worth the cost in some ways. Uh, as for the standards of behavior, that's precisely why I talked about the de-anonymization. Because, you know... When when I go on CNN, for example, and, and criticize Trump, the things that I get in my inbox, the death threats, the vile commentary, I do not get in person. Right? Nobody says this to me. They make a fake email account or they make a fake Twitter account, and then they say these vile things. And there's there's and I'm not saying for for me, I'm just saying that this is the perspective for white nationalists and white supremacists. It's the exact same logic, right? They're they're able to hide behind the fact that they can go to work the next day, spreading this extremist content and having no fear that the fact that they are a Ku Klux Klan member or a sympathizer of ISIS or whatever will ever come back to bite them because it's anonymous. And so I think I think we do need to have ways to try to police this a little bit better while still maintaining free speech, not going down the road of censorship, and also being sensitive to the fact that in authoritarian regimes, this could be used for bad purposes. So there's, it's a really tricky and thorny debate. But I think the idea of pretending that Facebook or Twitter is exactly the same as the Washington Post is misguided and ultimately will not really go anywhere in the public uh, policy sphere. Uh, Victor, is there an argument, though, looking at this the other way, that there is a an element of uh, 
overreaction going on here. Are we in blaming or apportioning any responsibility to social media platforms making the same error that people did when, for example, they blamed the Columbine school massacre uh, on the popular music stylings of Marilyn Manson? Is it not the case that there will always be people who are determined to carry out uh, acts of this sort and if the one particular animating medium isn't there, they will find another. Yes, and that, that's the point I was trying to make earlier on, that uh, it's terribly tempting to put all the responsibility on social media. And they definitely have a, 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 a major uh, responsibility in these sorts of activities, but they are not the only ones. And as you say, even if there was no social media, there still would be acts of terrorism and the alt-right and extreme nationalism and white supremacists and so on would still be operating even if there was no social media. Okay, well, let's move on and take a look now at the United States, where President Donald Trump has taken time out from a protracted Twitter tantrum, remarkable even by his choleric standards, to meet his Brazilian counterpart and approximate kindred spirit, Jair Bolsonaro. The two men have depressing quantities in common. Both ran as belligerent populist outsiders, liberally ladling rather their rhetoric with notably uncouth baiting of women, immigrants and sundry minorities. And so far, the pair have made a show of exchanging the jerseys of their national football teams. Trump has once again extemporised upon his loathing of the late Senator John McCain for some reason. Uh, Brian, the joint press conference is occurring literally as we are talking, helpfully. As far as I'm able to tell, it appears to be going much as you would expect, i.e. the two men basking uh, exuberantly in their regard for each other. A lot of talk about the uh, perfidies of fake news and political correctness uh, and so on and so forth. Is there any reason at all not to find uh, this conclave incredibly depressing uh no i don't think so but 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 i do think you know what, what i saw right before we went on air is that trump had said that he's extremely thrilled that was a quote to welcome bolsonaro and so you know i mean this is continuing the very depressing aspect of the trump presidency which is just openly embracing uh dictators around the world and also in bolsonaro's case somebody who is flirting with neo-fascism and neo-fascist ideas um, who has said some truly vile things. So you have, you know, sort of an unapologetic embrace of the people who normally would create a bipartisan rejection on Capitol Hill. Uh, Trump is, is welcoming Bolsonaro with open arms. Um, Victor, is Bolsonaro perhaps proof that Trumpism, strange and eccentric though it is, actually exportable? No. This is what's uh, fascinating about this uh bilateral meeting because on the face of it it looks like a marriage made in heaven but you don't have to scratch the surface very hard to see what divides them uh, as uh, is much more important than what unites them for example in Bolsonaro's team is his finance minister Paulo Guedes who is a fanatical neoliberal who is simply uh, in favor of uh, abolishing all restrictions on trade and capital flows and all the rest. It's very opposite of, of what Trump's economics team believe in. Secondly, you have the issue of China. Uh, China is Brazil's number one trade partner and the major investor. So the idea that uh, a Bolsonaro government will join in uh, China bashing along with uh, uh, the Trump administration is, again, uh, is, it isn't going to happen. So they can paper over the cracks. And of course, ideologically, there are things that unite them. But when it comes to practical public policies, it's very different. And 
Bolsonaro's team is a very divided team. Uh, uh, there are members of that team, including generals like uh, the vice president, Hamilton Murao, who don't uh, agree at all with uh, much of uh, Bolsonaro's ideological commitments. Um, Brian, there is a lot of talk at the press conference by the look of it, uh, and there has been beforehand about uh, Venezuela. Um, Trump has said again that all options remain on the table. Uh, Is it really possible to believe that Trump cares all that much one way or the other about Venezuela? Well, I think he does care, but I think he cares for reasons that are atypical for a politician, right? I mean, I think he thinks that this is a way to project strength. It might be a way to distract from negative scandals back home. And it also is a way to stick it to somebody that he wrongly perceives through the prism of left-right politics as opposed to authoritarian democratic politics. So I think, you know, the fact that Pompeo, et cetera, uh, my, uh, Trump's secretary of state, are you know, will articulate this critique of Maduro is absolutely right because Maduro is an authoritarian figure, but the reason they're doing it is more because they view the, in my view, the, the, the fact that they might have a, a, you know, more of an ally, ideologically speaking, or somebody who's willing to kowtow to Trump in a much greater way. So, uh, to, to my mind, you know, again, it's for the wrong reasons. It's one where, um, the saber rattling is, is a real risk and it is possible that it could end in some sort of, uh, military action. And I, I, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll very much see as this unfolds, but as Trump, unravels, as we saw on Twitter uh, over Sunday, you know, with 50 tweets and and sort of unhinged commentary, I think this type of outlandish foreign policy might become more likely. Uh, Victor, on that subject, uh, and as I alluded to in the introduction, uh, Trump's performance on social media over the weekend was unusual, even by the standards he has established. Do we infer anything from that at this point? What, you know, is he perhaps just bored? Uh, Does he know that a significant shoe is about to drop? What seems the likeliest explanation? I don't see how he could be bored. (laughs) I mean, of all the of all the emotions that uh, must be running through I, the I, White I, House. I, I genuinely <laughs> think a lot of the time he is. I, I really think that explains an awful lot of his behavior. Um, well, possibly. I'm not sure I share that. I think um, uh, shock and awe via Twitter is certainly very much part of his message. But, of course, he is concerned about the Mueller report. I mean, he's going to have to deal with that fairly soon, and that may be part of his motivation. He is apparently at the press conference now complaining about Twitter taking followers away from him, Brian. Yeah, well, um, I mean, what do you say about that? Right? <laughs> it's, it's the meeting of the president of the United States, the president of Brazil, and you have uh, you know, a complaint about Twitter followers. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of our times of how petty this administration is. I mean, from, from, from any grown man at all, this yeah, would be ridiculous. Well, Never mind one who is president of the United States. But, it, but it, the thing that's depressing about it is it's not even a story anymore, right? I mean, this morning he called his senior aide, Kellyanne Conway's husband, a total loser on, on uh, Twitter. You know, he, he said the Democrats stole, tried to steal the election at the ballot box. Uh, two days ago, you know, he boosted the guy who spread the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which is totally unhinged. And nobody even pays attention because they think, well, that's just who he is. I think that's the level that I think is, is most scary is how, how used to it we've gotten that these things that would define and destroy other presidencies have become uh, old hat with Trump. Um, just as a final thought on this before we take a break, Victor, if we can just imagine a, a parallel world, perhaps, in which both the United States and Brazil uh, 
uh, currently being governed by two relatively normal presidents. What would they be talking about at a moment like this instead of Trump's declining Twitter follower count? Well, funnily enough, uh, Bolsonaro made the point, uh, incorrectly as it happens, but not without a grain of truth, that he was the first uh, Brazilian president for a very long time who wasn't anti-American. Certainly his immediate predecessor was not anti-American, but it is true that the relationship between Brazil and the United States has been quite tricky for a long time. And certainly since uh, the restoration of democracy in the uh, mid-1980s. So the idea that uh, two normal presidents would go about, if you like, normalizing relations between the two most important countries in the Americas, with all due respect to Canada, I think that is is a good thing. Uh, Whether these are the two people to do it, I'm very doubtful because of the things that will divide them as the relationship Uh, deepens. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Brian Klaas and Victor Bulmer-Thomas. And coming up next, it is a big week for fans of arcane border disputes. Rome boasts an ancient specialisation in restoring the masterpieces of the past. But thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monocle Films travel to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museum's Maurizio De Luca. We can understand how restoration has always been present and how from the historical background schools of restoration were founders that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world. The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, and still with me are Victor Bulmer, Thomas and Brian Klaas. Now, one might have supposed that the spectacle of the United Kingdom over the last three years or so would have been enough to put every country on earth off referendums for life. Nevertheless, Belize is gearing up for one on April 10th, soliciting the permission of its people to put to the International Court of Justice the country's interminable border dispute with neighbouring Guatemala. Guatemala held a similar vote last year and found upwards of 95% of voters, admittedly on a 26% turnout, in favour of going to the ICJ. Um, Victor, first of all, before we proceed further, could you please enlighten that, I'm sure, tiny minority of our listeners uh, who might have skated over this one, uh, basically what this is all about? Well, when the uh, British settlers uh, first arrived on the coast of Central America, they confronted a Spanish empire that obviously opposed their presence. And it took uh, uh, until 250 years ago before they had any legal status whatsoever. But the British always acknowledged Spanish sovereignty. So when the Spanish empire collapsed, Guatemala claimed... um, Uh, Spanish rights in the region, including, from their point of view, the territory of Belize. 
Guatemala and Britain signed a treaty in 1859, but 80 years later, the Guatemalans unilaterally tore it up. So although Guatemala recognized Belize in 1981, she didn't recognize the boundaries of Belize and therefore still claims part of the territory. So after endless negotiations, which have gone on uh, far too long for anyone even to think about, the two sides agreed 11 years ago that they would take this to the ICJ. But to do that, you have to have a referendum in both countries. And to back to your point, Andrew, about uh, referendum, it's no accident that it's taken 11 years because both sides are very nervous about the answer you'll get when you ask a referendum. As you say, Guatemala's done it, overwhelmingly debated in favour. Belize will do it on April the 10th, subject to a challenge in the courts that's going on right now. Uh, the opinion polls suggest the Belizeans will vote no, but we will see. I, uh, is there likely to be, I mean, just follow that up briefly, Victor, can you please reassure us that there's no mechanism by which, because we are living through a very weird time in the United Kingdom at the moment, we're not going to end up at war with Guatemala, are we? No, uh, we, we are not, <laughs> although we have on many previous occasions, and we've sent gunboats there to repel uh, threats of invasions, etc. But... Uh, uh, the problem is you ask a question in a referendum and people will use it as an opportunity to uh, punish the government for something totally unrelated to the issue at hand. Uh, yes, as as we have been learning. Um, Brian, is a referendum... Well, it's a silly question to ask in the United Kingdom at this point. I was going to ask, is a referendum any way to conduct foreign policy? The better question is probably, is a referendum any kind of way to conduct anything? But if, if we look at Guatemala's referendum held last year, OK, 95% yes, but the trouble is 26% turnout. That's not... You can't really claim that as a mandate for anything, can you? No, I think it's, yeah, I've been an international election observer uh, several times. And, and usually if you have below 50% turnout, it starts to raise some eyebrows. Of course, that being said, you know, U.S. congressional elections sometimes are down in the 30s. So, you know, we we have to be not on our high horse too much. I think the, the funny thing about this story to me is that you have a referendum of two sovereign states voting to give power to an unelected court of judges, right? I mean, like, this is the exact, if Jacob Rees-Mogg heard about this one, <laughs> I'm sure he would be horrified, right? It's the exact opposite of the sort of take back control uh, narratives that you hear in, in this country. Um, Victor, what does actually happen if, as you suggest, the people of Belize vote no on April the 10th? Does this just turn into a modern-day equivalent of the Schleswig-Holstein uh, question, which we were discussing there in the break, believe it or not, listeners? I will answer that, but let me just, just quickly point out that in Guatemala, a turnout of 26% in a referendum is extremely high. There was one, not that long ago, where 8% of the population voted. So... Although it's 26% is, is, it's, would be nice if it was much higher. By Guatemalan standards, it was quite high. Therefore, the onus is very much on Belize to vote yes. Actually, I think they will. But if they were to vote no, uh, the wording of the special agreement doesn't say that's the end of the story. In theory, they could be asked to vote again in a year's time and a year after that and so on. There's no um, Erskine May in the Belize Constitution. <laughs> the, the Speaker, who is a very good friend of mine, actually, would not be required to, to uh, rule out further votes. But more seriously, if Belize votes no, there are two big problems. One is its international friends 
would say, look, you had your chance, you blew it, I'm afraid we can no longer help you in ways that we've done in the past. And the second is that the incursions across the border, particularly in the south from Guatemala, will accelerate and the Guatemalans will refuse to do anything about it because they say, well, we don't recognize the border. Are you absolutely sure that there there will be no gunboats that end up getting sent in over this? This, this? this sounds like it's what it's building up to. Not by the UK, no, because the, the one of the uh, interesting things about Belize is that uh, it could have had its independence uh, in the 60s. And the only reason it didn't is that because of the Guatemala uh, dispute with the threat from Guatemala, uh, the British had to keep troops there. And then in 1981, uh, it's a long story and I'll cut it short, the British uniquely kept uh, troops in the country with a defence guarantee for an independent country. But they finally withdrew their troops in 1993 after Guatemala had recognised the independence of Belize. But they forgot that Guatemala hadn't recognised the boundaries. They're not coming back. They're there for jungle training purposes and they pay a commercial rent. But they are not going back uh, with gunboats. OK, well, finally tonight, uh, few things are likelier to dispirit the urban dweller than the news that the neighbours are planning on having some building work done. Anyone finding themselves vexed at the disruption attendant on the erection of a new sunroom extension should pause to be grateful that they do not live next door to one resident of Hillsborough, California, who has for some years maintained a homestead apparently modelled on the architecture of the Flintstones. The house was built in the 1970s when things like that got built, but a new owner has decided to complement it with model dinosaurs, among other pertinent installations. Local authorities have now had enough and are now suing the owner. Um, Brian, would you ever like to, or indeed you're from America, maybe you have, would, would you have any objections to living next door to an artificial dinosaur theme park? Uh, I would not be pleased about it. I've actually seen the house. Um, I've seen it in California. It's a, it's an eyesore. Um <laughs> But, you know, I think I think that there's, you know, zoning laws in the U.S. are such that it really depends on the jurisdiction. Some are sort of Wild West style and you can do whatever you want and you put up as many dinosaurs as you feel like. And others are very strict. And it was it was a bit jarring. Is, is, is there a constitutional amendment covering this? <laughs> That, that, that seems an extraordinary no, and oversight. Actually, actually, it would be extremely controversial because the idea of local control for zoning laws is something that agitates a lot of uh, hardcore conservatives. So, uh, you know, it was it was jarring as an American coming over here where you have all these, uh, as Victor and I were talking about before the before the show, the idea of, you know, grade listed buildings and you can't make modifications to anything. And so uh, there, there's a wide gamut from from the sort of U.S. to this. This one is uh, pretty extreme. There was a case in Minnesota where a massive treehouse was built. Uh, somebody had made a three-story house in a tree, and the neighbors uh, basically sued them, and it came down uh, about six months ago. So they could have just waited for the next decent storm. <laughs> and, um, Victor, there is actually a genuinely interesting philosophical question attached to this somewhat ludicrous story, which is the one of what do we actually owe the sensibilities of our neighbors in how we choose to decorate our own property, and especially speaking as an Englishman who therefore presumably believes that his home is his castle, um, what, what, what account do you need to take of what the neighbours are going to think? Well, I'm Welsh, not English, nonetheless. I'm sure the sentiment holds <laughs> on that side of the border. I thought this is surely why God invented Leylandia hedges. Uh, 
it's to provide us with a mechanism by, by which uh, anything that is particularly infuriating on the part of a, a neighbor's house or garden can, uh, can be protected against. But more seriously, I'm always astonished how, you know, you, you live in a city, and the rule is basically live and let live. Uh, how else can you operate in a city? And yet I'm always amazed how often what should be really simple disputes to resolve get out of hand. And uh, I haven't seen this particular house, unlike Brian, but I don't think I'd have any problem living next door to what it. If to you, what if you lived next door to somebody who wanted to erect a statue, a life-size statue of Tyrannosaurus Rex in their backyard overlooking yours? No, I wouldn't object to that. I think what I would be upset about would be noise. But that is, of course, protected by the law. Um, there are noise pollution laws everywhere, as far as, well, almost everywhere, as far as I know. And you have to, if you can't resolve the matter amicably on a bilateral basis, you have to invoke the law. Uh, Brian, if your neighbour was to build, say, an enormous statue of Donald Trump uh, in, in, in their backyard overlooking yours, so it was right there every time you went outside, where, where would you would you take the the man is free to do as he likes attitude or or what? I guess I would find a life-size statue of Barack Obama or something to, <laughs> to duel with him. But, uh, no, I mean, it is an interesting question because there's some things where this happens where you have somebody wants to put up a, a large tree or something and it blocks your sunlight, right? I mean, the, the, there are zoning laws in some cities about trying to make sure that the buildings are, that are built are not too tall to, to block any natural light from, from uh, anyone around. So there are genuine philosophical issues to play. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Brian Class and Victor Bulma Thomas, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.